0: Today's Global Connections topic is Changing Times in Real Estate. We thank our special guests, Scott Reckler, Chairman and CEO of RXR, Stan Van Neurberg, Professor of Real Estate, Columbia Business School, and Larry Suskin, Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel.
1: Thank you, Josh. There was a very big number at the top of a page in the New York Times business section a few days ago. The big number was 49%. According to the Times story below it, that is the average office occupancy rate compared with pandemic levels in major, pre-pandemic levels in major American cities, 49%. Uh, The Times writer contrasted office work with air travel. That's bounced back. But for now, at least, it appears that the pandemic-driven move to working from home is still popular, certainly with workers who are spending part of each week working but not commuting. As demand for office space diminishes because of working from home but also because of layoffs in some sectors of the economy, the value of office buildings diminishes. And as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates to try to tame inflation, the owners of office buildings face higher costs when they refinance. Where are we headed if commercial real estate, which provides many cities with important sources of revenue, where are we headed if there's insufficient income to pay the rising costs of operating big office buildings? Is there a crisis coming? And does the prospect of that just threaten landlords and bankers or are the rest of us exposed to its consequences? Big questions, for which we have three very experienced panelists, a real estate executive, a professor of real estate, and an urban planner whose specialty is complicated multi-party negotiations. Our first panelist is Scott Reckler, uh, who has joined us before to talk about real estate in the post-pandemic world. I guess the pandemic was underway that time. Uh, Mr. Reckler is CEO and chairman of RXR, His company, based in New York City, owns dozens of buildings, commercial, residential, industrial, uh, mostly in and around New York. Uh, Scott Reckler has been vice chair of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, chair of the Regional Plan Association, and a board member of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. Uh, He now sits on the New York Federal Reserve Board, and I should acknowledge that he's been very active in the organization that sponsors uh, Global Connections, the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Scott Reckler, uh, Reckler, welcome back. Robert, good good to be here. Uh, A couple of years ago, uh, the future for your industry and your city looked a lot brighter. Uh, This year, your firm's white paper described the current situation, and I quote as not a minor obstacle that must be circumvented, but more a chasm every sector of our economy must cross. How bad is it?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think um, coming out of COVID, we knew that the world post COVID was going to be different than the world prior to COVID. And uh, we, you know we would speak, uh, and the language that we would say was there was the new abnormal during COVID, and we were transitioning to whatever that new normal would be. And, and I think what uh, this past year has shown is that that path to the new normal is more turbulent than anticipated. And we've seen that you know whether that's the um, the the spike in inflation, um, the the excess of liquidity that's been in the marketplace. Um, the the situation where you've seen growth that took place, whether it's technology companies or retail companies or people taking office space, assuming a level of uh, demand that existed during the uh, COVID period that that, that they assume was sustainable that wasn't sustainable, that's got to be brought back. And so you have a number of these challenges that, uh, that have been playing itself through. One of which you referenced in the opening comments was sort of the, the future of the of the office space and thinking about bringing people um, back to the office and remote work versus hybrid work. And I will I will say, um, on to that point, I'm more confident that we have better clarity now. And I think that at least in the in the the major cities like New York, um, that you know we have seen um, a, a recognition that there's going to be hybrid work, and that's something we anticipated. You know, I always would say the genies out of the bottle. You could see the Benefit of technology that when people come back to the workplace, it's going to be providing also flexibility. So when they come back, they don't have these long commutes. But when they do come back, it's also going to be a different experience. It's going to be yeah. about leaning into engagement, leaning into uh, collaboration with your peers, apprenticeship, mentorship, and so what that workspace looks like needs to be to be different. And so we're in our buildings, and you know, seeing um, a, a higher level of return to the office, at least, you know, I would say Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursdays, maybe in some cases, Mondays, Fridays, I'm not sure is going to be salvageable for, for many. But uh, so we're, we're, we're no. situating around that new normal right now.
1: The, uh, to, I want you to describe the impact on various properties. Your, your company looked at the current situation of RXR properties, and ran them through a review that was uh, uh, you called Project Kodak. Uh, named for perhaps the worst business decision uh, in, in our lifetimes, which was when the the giant in photography, Kodak, uh, took a pass on digital photography and didn't didn't think it was serious. You went through properties trying to say, is this when film I mean a goner with a past but no future, or is this when digital a building that has a future? How do you decide that? What what determines whether a building is film or a building is digital?
2: Right, and and to your point, and part of the reason for calling a project Kodak was. We wanted to be eyes wide open and face the reality, right? And and try to, you know, be very intentional about determining which are the properties that we think will be the most competitive in the post-COVID world and which ones would have a hard time being competitive. And the best analogy I can give is what happened with e-commerce, right? When e-commerce happened, people would shop online and people began to say, Why am I going to go to that mall again? And people began to write off malls. And what you started to see was that. Malls that were well-located, that had um, good entertainment, that had good ownership, uh, were able to actually become places that were destinations that people went for outings, and they ended up doing well. Malls that were further away, that were more commodity-like, were, were just sort of tired, they became competitively obsolete. And it took you know a number of years to create the distinction between the two. And the same is happening with office, right? Which is the the buildings that will be competitive are the ones that are easy to get to, right? The the easy commute that are in um, neighborhoods that are energizing, that have good restaurants, good activity, a good sense of community, that the buildings themselves have good infrastructure, outdoor space, uh, amenities, programming. Um, And so you have to go carefully through your portfolio to say which ones of those buildings can compete. The ones that can't compete are are ones that uh, you know are are, are not going to be something that these. There's even a rental number that you can ultimately lease it for office. So you have to think of what's the alternative use yeah. um, for that for that building uh, if the, if there, if there is a viable alternative use.
1: But it's. I mean, it sounds like it was a brutal process. I mean, one one of the buildings uh, that that you own, sixty one Broadway, is it was very public when you when you more or less announced that. Uh, uh, I don't know if you announced that it was film, not digital, but you announced that you weren't you weren't paying anymore, and you can do that under the contract you have. You weren't you weren't paying the loan on there anymore, and I can look at the advertising for that for that building online still, and it says you know it has the three virtues of real estate: location, location, and location. What what is it that makes a seemingly attractive building in today's uh, environment uh, a, a a a property not worth uh, not worth
2: pursuing? Yeah, so you know, it's th- th- that building. It's an it's an older pre-war building in Lower Manhattan. Um, it's not it's not one of the newer buildings uh, by the World Trade Center, where and where the transportation hub is really you know more active. It's uh, smaller floor plates, mm-hmm. um, smaller size uh, the tenants that occupy that building, um, and so you know, and and to your point. When we went through the process of Project Kodak, we, we were pretty public about it, um, and and you know we did that so that we could communicate to our stakeholders and our 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 tenants that you know we, this is this is not just RXR, this is where the world is today, right? And we're going to be focused on adjusting because this is not just a real estate problem, as you noted, right? This is, uh, in my opinion, this is a a problem for the urban ecosystem in which we operate because if you have buildings that sit vacant, that, you know, were once assets that, you know, created vibrancy, created tax revenue, supported the local businesses, supported the local restaurants in these uh, sub sub markets within our urban environments, if they sit vacant, they become liabilities, they become places where people loiter, they don't provide tax revenue, um, they're not supporting the local businesses. And so that that can have a, a devastating effect on our urban ecosystem, and something that we need to be Proactively trying to address.
1: Just one other point: uh, when a when you or any other property owner in in say downtown Manhattan or in any other downtown in America, when you decide that it's no longer worth paying uh, the the uh, the financing on, on on the building, that's that's a loan that the bank has to at some point acknowledge and and write off. So we're talking about a potential real estate crisis here, but it sounds like we're also talking about a banking crisis.
2: Yeah, you know, I think just to, to, to be clear, we're experiencing two things right now, right? One is we're experiencing a um, a paradigm change to sort of a new regime of where interest rates were, which yeah. was, you know, z- near zero or at zero for over a decade, decade and a half, to now where they've become more normalized. And I'm not just talking the short-term rates, I'm just saying more generally. Everything that was valued... In the and, and capital structures that were put in place in that old low interest rate regime, needs to be reevaluated today, and having a new capital structure for this new regime, and this was like very similar to the early um, 90s, late 80s, when we had the savings and loan crisis. Uh, in that case, it was it was tax driven, inflated real estate values, and then tax policy changed, and that that caused a problem. On top of that we have more of the existential challenge of the future of the workplace, right? So office buildings mm-hmm. have a, a, a double hit. But to your point, it's not just office buildings, it's multifamily, it's right. industrial buildings. Any any building uh, across the country that has had this problem uh, now needs to be addressed. And, and, and it will impact banks because, particularly regional banks, because they make up about 70% of the commercial real estate loans. And, and, and when you think about local, Borrowers and and they tended to uh, go to those regional banks for those loans, um, and now as the as the those loans have to be remarked to the current value to reflect where the interest rates are today, many of them are uh, are are underwater. I mean I've heard uh, numbers as high as 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 you know fifty percent of the banks that are I'll call the, the small to medium sized banks. If you marked their fixed income, you know their bonds. And their real estate holdings to market, um, at, at this point, they, they would be underwater right right now, those banks, right They're, and their balance sheets. So I think we're going to have a shakeout that's going to be a multi-year shakeout on the banking system as real estate loans come due and have to work to be refinanced. Um, that's going to result into having much fewer um, uh, banks around the country. Right now, there's over 4,700 banks. I could see there being 500 to 1,000 less banks. Um, in the US uh, you know, within the next couple of years.
1: Well, Scott Reckler, stick with us because in a few minutes, we're going to have our, our Q&A and discussion portion, but thank you very much uh, for now. We're gonna turn now to our second panelist. Uh, he actually uh, studies the business that Scott Reckler works in. Uh, Stan Van Nieuweberg is a professor of real estate at Columbia Business School. Uh, he has uh, uh, studied not just the impact of higher interest rates and working from home on real estate values, He's also made a rigorous examination of an interesting idea that sort of making lemonade from lemons when the lemons are empty office buildings. Uh, The idea is converting office buildings uh, to apartment houses. Uh, We'll hear about that and other matters uh, from Professor Van Neuwerberg. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you, Robert. Great to be with you.
1: There you are. Uh, first, I want you to try to sort out. You, you, you've looked at this rigorously. The causes of loss of value in real estate. That is, if, if some of it is caused by rising real estate, some of it's caused by tenants who need less office space. Uh, how do you how how do you analyze the, the the loss of value?
3: Yeah. So I think Scott laid it out laid it out very nicely for us. Where there's basically a secular change, and then there's uh, the, the, that's which is a remote work uh, change and then there's uh, the interest rate environment which has dramatically changed as well. So one way to look at it is you know just the rise in interest rates that we've experienced in the last couple of years. you know takes out you know for a typical office building in New York City maybe about 30 percent of the value just off the bat even without any uh, headwinds from reduced demand from remote work. Mm-hmm. Now layer on top of that you know this secular change in, in remote work which has depressed office demand. Uh, and which has already shown up in cash flows uh, that office owners are earning and you get sort of an additional maybe 20 to 30% drop in value so according to according to my estimates uh, a class b office building a lower quality older office building in new york city probably today uh, sort of on a mark to market basis if we were to revalue it would be worth about you know up to 60% less than uh, than it was just a few uh, just a few short years ago I a,
1: think, a, yeah. a, a, let me just repeat that for a second. You, you wrote this to some a property that had a pre-pandemic valuation of 100 million dollars is presently valued at 38.9 million after all those forces are taken into account.
3: That's right, and that's I mean, and that's an older building. That's a Class B building. I think the situation is not as dramatic for uh, the, the best part of the market, the A plus segment of the market that maybe loses only 20 percent in value. It's of course also affected by these higher interest rates. But uh, you know there is a flight to quality happening in the office market as well, where some of the most monetized buildings that are able to attract uh, the most deep-pocketed tenants are able to charge high rents um, and find and find tenants in the first place. So there is sort of a bifurcation in the market happening. It's that lower quality office product that is really severely hit.
1: Uh, I'm asking a lot about New York City. In part, you're in New York. Scott Reckler's properties mostly are in New York. Uh, how how well does New York City? Uh, stand-in for New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, and other big U.S. cities, or is it is it a one of a kind and an outlier?
3: Not at all. I think New York City is in many ways uh, a good case in the sense that New York City is a fairly well-diversified economy. It has tenants from all sorts of industries. Uh, As compared to, for example, San Francisco or Seattle, which has a lot of exposure to the technology sector, and we know the technology sector has embraced remote work, uh, you know, more enthusiastically than than most other sectors, and it it has been hit really hard, uh, much harder than New York City. Uh, Los Angeles, for example, is also struggling with very high office vacancy rates. So I think this is a a national story. This is an aggregate shock that hits the economy. Some places are doing better than others. Miami is maybe a bright spot in the office market. Um, But, you know, some of these, you know, these are far and few in between. The markets that are doing well today, the office markets are doing well, are far and few in between.
1: You've studied the idea of converting unprofitable office buildings into apartment housing or in climate terms turning brown commercial property into green residential uh, from your analysis I came away with the message that uh, it's feasible but only for some buildings uh, certainly not the majority and even in those cases it's it's feasible but it it sure isn't easy
3: do I, do I have that about right That's true. So there's basically three obstacles here. One is, is the building physically suitable for conversion, right? And a lot has been written about that. And this has to do with uh, the floor plate. We have a lot of full block, large office buildings, a lot of them glass and steel built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they're often not amenable to conversion. They're just physically uh, not the right layouts. It's too hard to build apartments into them. The distance from the window to the core of the building is too deep for an apartment layout. There's not enough plumbing. There's not enough air. There's not enough light. So the first step of our analysis was basically, can we filter down uh, from all office buildings a set of properties that are physically suitable for conversion? And we end up with around 10 to 15 percent of office properties that we think are potentially amenable to conversion based on their physical characteristics. The second step is: Is it allowed by zoning, uh, by, by zoning and by regulation, right? And that's sort of the place where the government, the local government, can play an important role. And then the third part is: it, is, 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 it, is it economically, is it financially feasible to convert? And we spend a lot of time thinking about the economics. And as you pointed out, um, it's oftentimes sort of a knife-edge case. What I mean by that is: Imagine you can buy this building that was worth hundred million dollars that is now worth let's call it $39 million. If you combine that building and its new low value of $39 million and you put in the extra money to convert it and you make it a green building and you turn it into a market rate, uh, let's call it luxury apartment rental building and you can charge the market rent that is in place today, then it's sort of its sort the economics sort of works, meaning you earn a high enough return as a developer right. relative to what you should be earning given the risk of that investment. Right? So it's feasible, but you start tinkering with the assumptions a little bit and very quickly, uh, you know, the math may no longer work out.
1: For the math to work out, does it have to be a luxury rentals? Uh, could, could it possibly be middle income rentals?
3: So it turns out that, you know, the answer to that is actually sort of, in most cases, again, every building is different, but in most cases, the answer is no. Once you layer on top of it, an affordable housing mandate, it very quickly ruins the economics of these conversions. Uh, Now, unfortunately, that's what the politicians want. and, And arguably, that's what we need. We need more affordable housing in our large cities. So, you know, that doesn't mean that it's not possible. It just means that we need more Uh, help to make that that a reality, right? So we can convert offices to apartment buildings. We can have a fraction of those apartments be affordable, but not without additional help, right? So for example, additional property tax abatements uh, could come into play. Additional debt subsidies uh, for affordable housing could come into play. And potentially, given that we're thinking about clean energy, green apartments, potentially federal subsidies through the Inflation Reduction Act, which is sort of the U.S.'s climate bill.
1: But you'd have to have some intervention into the market in order to to get that result. The, the that wouldn't wouldn't check out. Um, for somebody who um, uh, lives in the middle of the country, far from uh, uh, Lower Manhattan, uh, if if indeed uh, we see, as as Scott Reckler described it, uh, a serious problem with banks and uh, uh, less money for big cities to spend on their neediest populations. How does it affect someone who's living, well, you said Miami is having a a good office economy. How does it affect people uh, 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 far afield?
3: Well, I mean, as we pointed out, I think this is really a national phenomenon. For example, you know, the city of Minneapolis in the Midwest is sort of struggling, has a struggling office market as well. Mm -hmm. Charlotte, uh, you know, you name it. Like this is an aggregate. This is a national phenomenon. Again, not every city equally, but a lot of downtown office markets are affected and they're struggling with the same issue. A lot of the um, implications for regional banks are also uh, widely dispersed, a lot of regional banks tend to lend to regional landlords, and so to the extent that we have these regional downturns in, in office markets, it will affect the local banks. These banks are not just making commercial real estate loans, they're also making loans to small businesses. So to the extent that they're making losses on their commercial real estate loans, yeah. they 're going to have to tighten credit to the rest of their of their, of their borrowers, and that 's going to impact the local economies in a lot of different places. So there will be spillovers through the credit through, through credit provision.
1: Well, Professor Van Neuwerk, stick with us, because in a few minutes we'll be back uh, to to discuss this further with you and with Scott Reckler. But we're going to turn now to our third panelist, uh, who is Professor Lauren Suskind. Uh, Larry Suskind teaches urban planning at MIT. Uh, He also founded and is vice chair of an inter-university program on negotiation uh, that involves both MIT and Harvard Law School. Larry has taught about dispute resolution in public policy issues. He's led uh, graduate students to Malaysia to study sustainable city development in five Malaysian cities. Uh, and he's even taught about socially responsible real estate development. Uh, Larry Suskind, welcome to uh, Global Connections. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Robert. Good to
1: talk let's, to you. So let's start with that intriguing phrase, socially responsible real estate development. Uh, how How would you define that?
0: Well, if you take what your last two... Uh, uh, commentators talked about it's all from the perspective of uh, private capital Mm -hmm. Um, but if you said well you're in public space and you have permission to do what you're doing which includes some responsibility not just to make money and uh, what if we said uh, that responsibility included making the next set of decisions in light of everything you've just heard in a way that doesn't just focus on the return to capital, but also focuses on achieving the responsibilities or social responsibilities uh, of companies that are licensed, that are permitted to build and own facilities. So I think about the responsibilities that go with the opportunities that uh, real estate development is granted through our system of decision-making and regulation. And uh, what if you took all of uh, uh, Stin's questions and looked at them from the other direction? He was alluding to the fact, well, if there was enough subsidy, federal, state, local, if the building wasn't just gonna be residential, it was gonna include a whole new mix of things in a new format. And some of them would subsidize others, but you'd have to change all the zoning and you have to change all the ways we think about how places are designed and developed. Uh, But what if we said the goal is to meet a variety of responsibilities at the same time as trying to figure out how to proceed in a way that the return to capital is adequate? That's what I mean by social responsibility. Taking account of All of the impacts of the changes that are occurring and deciding how collaboratively all the interests in the city can work together and how the city government could facilitate a conversation and a set of decisions that would take us to a very different pattern of development, a different system of financing development, and a way of ensuring that social needs were met.
1: So here we have this this uh, fairly common situation around the country now, which is many downtown business districts are are facing losses because of higher interest rates and because of uh, new work schedules. Uh, that means uh, declines in real estate taxes for 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 localities, as 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 you've said. Uh, has anybody around the country been especially creative in addressing these these concerns and breaking a a vicious circle in which we can see less less money on hand uh, to, uh, say, a, aid homeless people, even as we're not addressing the homeless problem.
0: Well, we have yes, the answer is yes, and that there's different different pieces of that history. If you look in New York and l a and you look at the the idea of public benefit agreements, developer comes in, says, I, "I'm allowed to do this." but I'd like to be able to build higher or denser or whatever, the city says, well, sit and talk with the people that the unions that construct housing, sit and talk with neighborhood, talk to the members of the city council that represent the section where you are and see if you can reach a a negotiated agreement. And if you can, then we'll make sure the city allows you to do even more than the minimum that regulations would permit you to do. And the concept of a public benefit agreement, mm-hmm. which has been negotiated around new all kinds of public facilities, you're going to build the giant sports arena, say to that developer, you got to talk with all of the interests uh, spread out in the area and see if there's a way in which you can reach an agreement on how all kinds of related benefits could be generated for other groups. And if the developer of the facility and the city and the uh, community can reach agreement, we'll let you do more than you would otherwise be able to do, thereby increasing your profit, but ensuring that that extra value is focused on a way that meets the needs of those whose needs are so far unmet by the market. And that idea of negotiated Mm -hmm. development, we have lots of examples across the country, place by place, moment by moment. Uh, I think we need to be thinking about a system that says, oh, this problem we just heard about today, this is everywhere. There's gonna have to be a very different kind of discussion about what the redevelopment is gonna be of all of these places that are only half full.
1: By 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 redevelopment, I mean the the word suggests uh, to to my ear at least the possibility of knocking down buildings that have been there for a long time.
0: That may be the best decision as long as everyone agrees what's going to be built, Mm -hmm. after, and how the benefit of the rebuilding is going to be shared. Then people would say, "Yeah, of course." uh, As long as I get my basic my money back, or the city gets its money, or these. the developer gets their money tear it down build yep. it again this is a normal process in the history of cities
1: do 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 you um uh, agree that the hybrid work week uh or i, I think as, as scott reckler said the fr- friday's all virtually lost now and to to uh, all office work uh do you believe that that is something permanent and that in fact we've uh, we've turned a major corner, as as, as big as uh, it was when we went from a five and a half day work week, and um, you know, people used to work half a day on Saturday, uh, and now they work. We used to think they worked five days. Uh, now they work at home for uh, you know for that time. Is is it to your mind? Is it conceivably
0: reversible, or is it is it the new order? Uh, I I can't prove it. But in my mind, the, the addition of flexibility across the board is here to stay. Yeah. And you want to attract the employees who you really want and need, and you want to keep them, flexibility. And flexibility, for some, means being able to work from home, being able to work different hours. Or it might mean being able to come to an office that's structured in a way that's different to meet the needs of a new set of workers. But yes, I don't think we're going back. I don't know what we're heading to. And I don't yeah. think we're heading to the same thing everywhere at the same time.
1: But structure structured in, in a new way mean that's not your office or your desk? You share that with the other guy who comes in for the other half of the week or the other woman who works Fridays.
0: That certainly happened in a, in a lot of contexts. Uh, and I don't think that's going to go back. Everybody gets their own private office b- bigger because you have more status, and uh, somehow the work still gets done. I, I don't think so,
1: so I told you uh, i I'm product of an upbringing in a in a famous or some would say notorious housing project that uh, was built with a huge tax abatement for metropolitan life insurance company, Stuyvesant town. Uh, it was uh, the idea was to have housing for returning veterans from from World War two city faced a terrible housing shortage and for all of its all of its peculiar history and and uh uh unattractive things about it it was a great place to grow up and it was affordable and it was a place for teachers and cops and and firefighters uh uh, as well as lawyers and a couple of doctors to live in um that was part of urban renewal they they paved over the old gas house district of lower manhattan to uh, to build this thing is there another age of that in our future of saying, uh, look, we have a real problem with the housing for the so called miss- missing middle? And we have half full office buildings that are occupying prime real estate. Let's let's revisit urban renewal this time. At least we won't be destroying neighborhoods, only, only office building sites. <laughs> uh,
0: I think we have terrible urban renewal stories and yes. different. The country and we have superb urban renewal stories the critical question is who's going to participate in making decisions about what happens in given each given place and if you say we the goal is just to get the economy back online and to get the banks back in uh, to the profit side um, you're going to get urban renewal decisions that are going to destroy places destroy people, but more importantly, miss opportunities that are possible in a new technology age. So we've got to think about who's making the decisions. And could we have collaborative com- problem-solving conversations that are different in each place that lead to rebuilding? I don't want to call it renewal, because that evokes all the bad examples mm-hmm. of development. But if we could, and maybe it means this is done at small scales for particular buildings, or maybe it's done for neighborhoods, or maybe it's done at multiple scales simultaneously, but systematic engagement of representatives of all the relevant stakeholder groups, I would argue with the help of professional facilitation so it's not just the usual political meeting in which people stand up and cheer or boo for one argument or another, but rather collaborative processes that produce collective ideas and shared proposals that everyone says they can live with because they've all been involved and they've all heard each other and they've tried to figure out what they can generate by consensus.
1: Well, we're all going to now hear one another. I'd like to bring back Scott Reckler, and uh, Stan Van uh, uh, Neuerberg uh, to join you, Larry Susskind. And uh, uh, first, I, I just like to ask you, starting uh, with, with Scott and then Stan, and then you just, just to comment on what you've heard from your fellow panelists, if there's something that you'd like to either underscore, uh, state your agreement with, or your disagreement with. Uh, Scott Reckler?
2: And then just, um, I thought uh, Professor Susskind's comments about public-private partnerships and collaboration um is is key um you know when we think then the, the point we've seen some really good ones and we've seen some bad ones I've been involved in some very good ones um for example we're master developer of, of a city outside of Manhattan called New Rochelle mm-hmm. where the uh the leadership of the the city decided that they needed to have a redevelopment to spark uh, economic activity enhance their school district um and uh, and public safety and uh, an opportunity Um, But the the way that was successful, to Professor Siskind's uh, point, was you had the air game of the leadership, but the ground game of working with the local community to get buy-in to what the ultimate vision was. And then the other piece I think that I've seen successful is it wasn't prescriptive of exactly what was going to happen. It laid out the ground rules of which then the private sector can interact with the public sector knowing what those ground rules were knowing what the regulatory process would be knowing what tax incentives would be available based on what you're contributing on infrastructure arts quality of life uh and then and that sparked activity and um you know we've seen that in Manhattan also with the East Midtown rezoning as well so i think the uh, the, the situation where we are right now where we need such a high level of reimagination of our our urban centers um i think we need the leadership to help set some uh, some establish some ground rules um, and um, and de- and expedite some of the regulatory challenges. Mm. Uh, so th- otherwise I don't think the 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 uh, private sector is going to be able to effectively participate and produce what is an outcome that's uh, you know one plus one equals three uh, and there's a win-win-win situation there.
1: And uh, Stan van Newerberg thoughts on what you've heard from your fellow panelists?
3: Yeah, I would add one thing, which is that in, the incentives are aligned. The government, if you like, is a thirty percent owner of every building in in the, in the city so by virtue of collecting property taxes from it. So if it needs to set out, you know, the rules of the game in the status quo, it's going to face declining tax revenues. You know, if that building continues to be operated as a defunct, half-empty office building, its tax revenues will eventually decline. And so it has incentives to, you know, facilitate this adaptive reuse, these conversions that we spoke about. So I think, the, the, you know, the the conflict of interest in some sense is, is sort of, it's not there. There is sort of an alignment of incentives just from the from the tax base. But I do agree that there are a lot of stakeholders in cities that need to be engaged in, in the process.
1: Well, now I'm going to, since we heard from, from Larry before the two of you, I, I'd just like to turn to some questions that have been submitted by, by viewers. Uh, one is... Uh, this is from Anna Ferretti, who, who asks, uh, when considering converting office buildings, this is for, for Professor Van Neuenberg, uh, when considering converting office buildings into apartments, what impact is this upon health and overcrowding? Uh, putting more people in cramped spaces does not sound like a healthy housing solution. Do you, what do you think of that?
3: It's interesting that this comment comes up because I think a lot of our rules and regulations are actually dating back to the period and maybe in the 19 teens and 1920s that there was a lot of overcrowding uh, in, in in cities um and if actually if you look at density in in a place like Manhattan density in the population per square mile if you like has been declining ever since ever since 1910 and it's actually much lower now than it used to be in those periods so I think a lot of those fears are potentially, uh, sort of fears from the past. Uh, we do have building codes that that sort of uh, make provisions on what can cannot be done. I do think we have to be imaginative. I think there's a lot, the, the new generation of 20 some year olds uh, doesn't necessarily need to have the same sort of large apartments than 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 its predecessors. I think we can be creative. We can have housing models where we have maybe smaller private uh, bedrooms and more common space, more common kitchens, common dining rooms and so forth. And I think some of these office floor plates could potentially accommodate that. So I would sort of encourage I would encourage uh, creative thinking when it comes to housing solutions, but certainly nobody's thinking about overcrowding.
1: It's a question I'll put first to Larry Sescon, but I'd like to hear from all of you on it. Uh, An anonymous attendee asks, for those of us who miss the camaraderie of the office, uh, what is the future of office social interaction? How will this change our overall sense of community uh, in, in a social sense?
0: Um, let me translate that into the university context, right? During the pandemic, uh, nobody was coming into a class, nobody's coming to school, and uh, we still managed uh, to create a community. We have whole uh, years worth of graduates who missed all the classes and all the normal social interaction, uh, especially those who wouldn't be have been living on campus. But what we had to do was learn a very different way of creating community online. It was supplemented recently by more face-to-face, but it hasn't eliminated the online uh, development of community through hybrid uh, relationships. So uh, I think that the companies that are trying to worry about the quality of work life uh, need to engage their employees and talk about different, not just one solution, different Mm -hmm. ways that different subgroups can find the partnership and the companionship and the community uh, that that otherwise uh, they would be missing if they're not going into the office every day. But I don't think it's impossible for those places to have different kinds of community generated by the participants not just from the company headquarters on down, but give resources to the groups. Let them figure yeah. out how they want to generate relationships amongst them. I I, I don't think it's impossible.
1: Scott Reckler, thoughts on uh, uh, the, the the new uh, the, the the new form of office work and the social relations that will follow I,
2: from it. Yeah, I would say I do think um, there is a um, meaningful dilution of social relationships and. um, Personal and professional development. If it's fully remote, I think that if you have a hybrid program um, and if you lead with personal interactions and supplement with flexibility, as Professor Suskind said, I do think that is a part of the norm to be competitive in the future. But you can—it's very, very difficult uh, for most professional roles. Some are not this case, but most of them that are based on interacting with people. Um, looking at people as your mentors, uh, they're your apprentices, you're listening to them on phone calls, you're watching them in meetings um, that you that are you know much more, um, you know, not designed ahead, but uh, things that happen uh, that you can't plan for right? spontaneous interactions. And so I think that's it's a key. But I also do think in when you're in the office, you also need to be much more intentional about not coming to the office and sitting in front of video conference in your own office all you know, throughout the day, you need to be <laughs> forcing these personal interactions, right? And that's something that we do at RxR. You know, we have, when we're here, we have a series of in-person meetings, walkarounds, uh, events after work. And then on days where we have remote, which is on Friday, uh, we actually have very intense video uh, conference days where we can have 500 people participate in a town hall session that they can get, a better feel for what's going on via you know, a online medium than they would if they were in the office where we wouldn't be able to see the face and put up slides and have some of those interactions. So again, it's a, it's a new world, but uh, I think as, as technology continues to evolve, we'll find a way to blend that hybrid as effectively as possible.
1: And Stan Van Neuerberg, thoughts on uh, social relations and the new style of work?
3: Yeah, I will give uh, one anecdote, which comes from uh, a major accounting firm, as well as from a major financial services firm, which is, you know, when they bring in their new group of first year interns, you know, fresh out of business school or out of undergraduate, uh, they, they track their productivity, and what they noticed is that the folks that they hired uh, in 2021 who were remote in that in that summer internship, you know, performed meaningfully worse in their jobs sort of a year down the line compared to previous cohorts. And that was just a measurable statistic, and they did, these firms decided to bring those groups back as soon as it was possible for essentially retraining or additional, additional training. And, uh, and so I think it does show that there is a lot of mentoring. There's a lot of learning by doing happening on the job in person especially for in you know, those first few years of one's career. And uh, I think we need to be mindful of that. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we, that needs to take place in an office. It could take place in a conference room. It could take place on an offsite retreat. There's sort of many real estate um, solutions to that problem, but I do think the adoption of corporate culture, the, the mentoring and the training is sort of a critical stage and it does require in-person.
2: Right, but also I'll just add to this that point, which is, you know, the, the great resignation was not by accident. I know we were in a tight labor market, but there was also a period of time where there was not um, a sense of connection. Everyone was a free agent. If you wanted to leave your job, you didn't have to go back into the office and say goodbye to your friends. You didn't have to pack up your desk. You didn't have to change your commute. Uh, all you had to do was change your email address, and you sat in the same seat in the same, you know, in front of the same computer. That 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 lack of connection, um, you know, is a part of that la- the the dilution of that social fiber that has kept these organizations together. And I think we've seen, um, to our organization and organizations that I do business with, a, a much greater uh, decline in uh, this uh, these you know great resignations since people are back working in the office again, developing personal relationships.
1: Uh, th- I'll put this question to you, Scott Reckler, or I, uh, maybe our last from the audience. An- another anonymous attendee asks, how can a young couple buy their first apartment in this economic environment? And I'll broaden that to or perhaps house in another
2: uh, uh, city. It's, it's pretty rough. No, yeah, no, it doesn't. I think one of the great challenges we're going to be facing as a country is our housing shortage. Um, and, um, you know, this has gotten, uh, this was challenging, you know, going into COVID. Uh, it's been now exacerbated uh, by the increase in interest rates, which not only makes the cost of, of buying a home or an apartment more expensive because your 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 mortgage payments are higher but at the same time it's created a credit crunch that's now reducing supply so we're go- we're going to come out of this period in 2025 2026 with a a, a even thinner pipeline of new supply which is going to make it more challenging so i you know it, you know this all, all these issues that we're talking about and i think you know both uh Stan and Professor Sussing had focused on it is it, it, it this requires leadership and intentional policies, because us coming out the other side with a new model, it's not preordained, right? I mean, I always say New York has recovered, finds a way to recover. It just doesn't happen naturally. It happens with good leadership. It happens with good policies. It happens, you know, with, with a level of civic commitment and identifying these issues. And we are in a moment where, you know, we have these existential challenges in front of us that, um, you know, I think the, the, the bugle should be blowing to all you know, leaders, not just the elected, but civic leaders, business leaders, uh, you know, community leaders, that we got to come together and solve these problems. Robert, could I comment yes, on
0: that? Yes, please. Um, imagine uh, uh, where a city that, because of the decisions it's made, uh, has said, if companies are going to employ new people uh, in these categories, uh, we will help match the company's uh, mortgage subsidy for its new employees. Uh, But all of this has to take the form of co-equity so that uh, when the person leaves the unit that they were able to finance with both public subsidy and corporate subsidy and commercial involvement in this new loan or this uh, purchase, the change in the value of that property over time that doesn't all go to any one of those contributors. There's a mm-hmm. co-equity process and it certainly doesn't all go to the, to the short-term owner or renter, but it's possible to change the availability of funds to match the policy objective, which is companies wanna get new young employees. How are they gonna do that? Yeah. Universities gotta subsidize the mortgages of new junior faculty, cause they can't afford to live. In many of the cities where the universities are located and they don't just do that with a bank they have to put in subsidy and what if the city was saying and we want to be part of this too and what happens is when there's an increase because we're all working together in the value of that property that increase in equity at the point that that owner or renter leaves goes back into the pool it's possible to have new forms of partnership not just public-private but but more elaborate, and we could help that person that Anonymous is worried about being able to buy their next place because yep. it could be part of their work benefit. It could be part of their engagement in that city.
1: Yes, I, I was going to say that one of the things driving people uh, to prefer working from home is not driving, is 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 in fact uh, it's so expensive perhaps to live close to where one works uh, that uh, one has taken on a big commute uh, that, that can be avoided. But it's even more complicated than that. We live in an era of, uh, of, uh, two, two worker households, uh, and, uh, there may not be any place that's close to both workplaces that, uh, the two people have. Let me, let me put a question to you that Alan Birkenwald asks and, uh, the last professor, uh, uh, uh to, to answer this one with declining commercial real estate values. Will residential real estate become more valuable?
3: It's actually a very interesting question and I think a very difficult question. It is hard for me to imagine um, a city whose office values are declining precipitously and that is sort of financially in dire straits with an environment where um, residential real estate is flourishing and booming. That is difficult. What I can imagine is that cities like New York City, that are fundamentally strong, that still have very strong amenities that are attracting young people, um, can sort of turn the ship around through strong leadership, uh, and can turn some of these you know uh, offices that are that, of which we have too many into apartments of which we have too few, and that that can sort of be accretive to the value uh, of of the city. I can imagine that. But there is, comes a point where once you're in Detroit and the city spiraling out of control and you're losing you're losing population that the value of the residential real estate will also begin to decline so it's important that we don't get to that point in in sort of our major cities
1: i have a question for for uh, scott reckler um you 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 mentioned that uh, one consequence of all this as uh, banks write off bad loans to uh, uh, to uh, Real estate projects that are no longer worth what they what, what they used to be worth, uh, will 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 lose a lot of banks. Uh, that is, uh, will 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 have far fewer banks. That's exactly the opposite of the um, of the policy aim that we came out of the the Great Recession with. That is, the the feeling that if we have too few banks, we'll have bigger banks, all of which are too big to fail, and uh, we end up uh, the government ends up. Backstopping the few banks that survive—is uh, there any way to avoid our losing hundreds of banks over the next few years?
2: Yeah, and I think um, again, I think there's still going to be a lot of banks compared to other parts of the of the world. Um, and I think Stan, you know, made made the point also uh, in 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 his commentary about um, you know where we stand right now in terms of of the of the, the banking situation. I, I would say that um, the 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 key to these banks is not so much the, the, the too big to fail, is that they are the the fabric of those communities, right? They mm-hmm. are the lifelines to the small and medium sized businesses. So it's not just real estate, but that small to medium sized business, they're not going to JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs for a loan. They're going to XYZ local bank who has a relationship with them, who's helping them fund their business. And so what I think the, the issue is that we're gonna have um, you know more of a challenge in our throughout our country, than uh, than we did during the great financial crisis, where it was more isolated in in the in the bigger banks. So that which I think could be worse of a circumstance, uh, in that in that guys. And just also one last point on Stan's point. You know, you 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 asked a question about New York and other cities. Is it you know similar to other cities? You know, mm-hmm. San Francisco is a tough city right now because San Francisco has the the double challenge of people not wanting to work there and people not willing to live there because of the quality of life issues crime, uh, et cetera. New York, fortunately, has seen an unbelievable uptick of people wanting to live in New York, right? The people from around the world want to be here. I was talking to a head of real estate of a global uh, tech company who said, we're going to give you flexibility to work anywhere you want to work, but you got to come to work. Tell us where you want to work. And 80% said New York, right? So people want to be in New York. And so we have to reimagine, but that is a natural resource that we have, which is that we have the culture, the diversity, the quality of life, the 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 infrastructure that drives people to want to be here, that we need to lean into.
1: Scott Reckler, thank you very much. Uh, Larry Suskind, uh, last thoughts: If uh, if people should come away from this discussion of uh, of where we are and in, in, in real estate right now, what do you think is the most important message they should take?
0: Don't search for a single solution. The circumstances in communities and cities across the country are really different. And there's not going to be a simple solution to what we do in light of all these changes that have occurred. So let's be focused on conversations that are contextualized, take account of the worst problem or the better problem or the worst opportunity in each place, and don't think there's a simple solution that someone's going to Write a book about and say, I've solved the problem of nobody working, uh, you know, everybody working at home. I've solved the problem of empty office buildings. There's not one solution. A lot of hard work to come up with strategies to do better in each place. And Stan Van Neuerberg, last thoughts.
3: Uh, real estate is slow moving. Uh, leases are very long term. Uh, mortgages are very long term, and you know that creates potentially a slow moving crisis. But it also gives us time to come up with a solution. And I think that you know I agree that there is this is going to be a multifaceted problem with, with that's going to require a range of creative ideas. But I believe there is a possibility to to turn to turn this around uh, to the benefit of, of of the cities and to reimagine what cities look like.
1: And Scott Reckler, I'll give you last last thoughts.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll just reiterate again, which is, I think this is, and I think um, Professor Skan said it well, and and Stan said it well, which is, this is, uh, and also an opportunity, right? There's an opportunity that uh, we have the the chance to reimagine ourselves for this post-COVID world. This was an accelerating a lot of trends that were already happening um, in a lot of different parts uh, of the uh, of the country and the world, and so we should lean into it. We should uh, all display leadership, we should have our eyes wide open to the challenges, uh, but recognize that they're there and um, and and work to find solutions that make us stronger, more equitable on the other side of it.
1: Well, thanks to all of our guests, uh, Scott Reckler, Stan van Neuerberg, and Larry Suskind. Also many thanks to Joshua Plout and Roni Gibelliano of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, which produces Global Connections. And also thanks to our technical director, Bobby Grandone. Uh, our program sponsor is the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. It's a 501c3 national charitable organization. It represents, in the United States, uh, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petach Tikva in greater Tel Aviv. Uh, the group's website, by the way, is www.afrmc.org. I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been Global uh, Connections, Navigating the New Normal. See you next month. Uh, Stay healthy and stay safe.